At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American-built, American strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Sitting around the campfire this morning with Mr. Shane Mahoney. Now, I don't think there's anybody in the outdoor world that hadn't heard of Shane in the past and know some of the really great things he's done and what he's doing, and I know what he's going to do as well, too. So, Shane, we're here at the Texas Wildlife Association coming to the tail end of it this morning, and you were here as a speaker for some of our uh, midday and all those other kind of great times that we had in terms of listening to you. Tell about some of the things you've done and what you're working on. On. But having been here, I think this is your second year of being it here is, at the, is, yes. of the <clears throat> Texas Wildlife Association. What's your kind of what's your play or what's your ideas about this organization? Organizations such as this maybe being used, maybe utilized somewhere else as well too. Well, uh, first of all, I think it's a, an extremely progressive, inclusive, welcoming organization that is. Uh, trying to really make the connection between uh, the land itself and, of course, in this particular state, the people who own the land, because so much of the land is privately owned, um, and the recreational user, and in particular, of course, the hunter in, in this particular instance. And I think that's a, a rather unique and uh, extraordinarily important uh, connection and a mission for an organization to have. Uh, very often, as you know, uh, people kind of work on one side or the other. Maybe they work in the land management side, <clears throat> whether that's public or private land, uh, or they work on the sort of the hunting side of things, you know, uh, with things like recruitment or retention or training or whatever it might be. But uh, obviously, uh, to have hunting, one needs many things. Uh, you need wildlife, of course. You need land to support that wildlife. Uh, but then you must also have a way of accessing that wildlife uh, and where the land is mostly in private hands, then private ownership, property rights, of course, uh, supersede any other kind of law in a sense in terms of access. And so it makes a great deal of sense to be bringing the landowners and the hunters together in the, in the way that uh, TWA is doing. <clears throat> the other thing that I think is very important 
is that there's a lot of emphasis in lots of organizations, and ever since the sort of uh, R3, you know, the recruitment, retention, reactivation programs began, which we sometimes forget are now, you know, quite, quite, quite old. Yes. <laughs> you know, they've been around a while. Uh, right. You know, there have been uh, lots of emphasis, of course, on young people and trying to bring young boys and girls into the hunting world. But it really does seem that uh, TWA has sort of oiled that machine to a level of refinement that's, uh, that's really quite outstanding. Not just the number of, uh, you know, sessions they have for bringing young people onto land and teaching them how to hunt and, you know, all the volunteers they have that help with that process. But also, you know, even the a way that uh, we saw last night that they give out, in quotation marks, the awards. <clears throat> I, I'm not a big... Uh, I'm not a big proponent of big flashy awards for, for, for hunting. Personally, I never have been, as you right. know. And it's well documented in my writing and in my lectures. Yes, sir. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't believe that people shouldn't be able to find a way to express their deep emotions about it. And so it's all about how those kinds of things are run. Uh, and I really think that TWA does a great job with that, not only with the little humans that are involved, you know, uh, but also with the with the more mature humans that are involved in the process. It's just more, you know, it's a, it's a quiet, subtle, moderate, modest sort of recognition. And yet it means a great deal, obviously, as we saw when we watched those awards, of course, uh, to the people that are there. So <clears throat> I think that's another thing that really impresses me about TWA. They take what is a sort of a classic component of many non-governmental organizations that are in the hunting space, which is we give awards for this, you know, greatest hunter or <laughs> most hunts, whatever it might be. <laughs> and as I said, I'm just not a fan of those things. Uh, but I, but the recognition that's given there, you know, the very nice, simple, you know, ornamental things that are provided to the people who happen to get a, a very nice looking whitetail or mule deer or whatever it might be. And to see those little little humans up there so proud, and I think in one case it was a little human who actually uh, got got one of the the best. <laughs> it, indeed, that happened. I think in a couple of different categories, yeah, yeah. actually. Yeah, which was pretty amazing. So I uh, I'm very impressed with that, and I'm also very impressed, of course, with uh, just the fact that um, it's an organization that's very well run. It's very efficiently run. It uh, takes very good care of the money that it is able to raise. Uh, it's very responsible in that sense. It has great leadership, very mature. The honesty is transparent. Uh, you know, the welcoming of people, uh, you know, is just amazing. And that's not just true, of course, of TWA. I find Texas that way. Texas, Texas that way. we kind of pride ourselves yeah, yeah, on yeah. that. And it's, it's obvious. And I come from a place similarly. And so yes, sir. I really appreciate that. And uh I just don't have enough good to say about it. I mean, I came here, <clears throat> you know, of my own volition, of course. I, right. I just came and uh, they asked me to do some speaking. I was glad to do that for them. And, uh, but, you know, I also have a lot of colleagues and friends that uh, attend this. That, yes, sir. Know, the guys from the Caesar Kleberg are here. The guys from Texas Parks and Wildlife are here, et cetera, et cetera. And I've had quite a number of uh, uh, people whom I didn't know before who are now interested in talking to me about my work and, you know, I mean, who knows? It's not impossible that there might even be, you know, some further collaborations that come out of these meetings. So 
I just think it's a top-notch organization, and I just hope that people continue to support it in the way they have and 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 do as much as they possibly can for it. We've been very fortunate. I was one of the three co-founders of TWA back in 1985, and where we have hit it over the last several years to where we are now is really that was my vision yes. as to where TWA should be. It, yeah. I, I love the fact that we do have the Texas Big Game Awards. Yeah. As you mentioned, those awards really are as much for the animal yeah. as opposed to the hunter, yeah. but also for the guys who are involved in the management aspect of that. Yes. And of course, we have the youth hunting organization that I think we have now taken something like 80,000 kids That's hunting since we started yeah. as of this past year. And now we're really getting into the adult side of things, yes. too, which yeah. absolutely thrills me. And then, of course, yeah. too, there's a great education aspect with what we do within in, in different schools and such yes, as with absolutely. the brigades and that uh, yeah. I know that you visited with Russell Stacy and and Kaylee, his daughter, who's and yes. she's become a huge <laughs> proponent of those as well, too. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so there are many aspects of it. And we're so really thrilled and proud to have you here. And, I, and two, as you mentioned, we have a tremendous amount of people coming in from the different universities, the different yes. organizations uh, who we bring in to do seminars, but also to more than maybe anything else to interact. Yeah. Uh, we plan just enough programs where we've got things going on, but we also try to make enough kind of leisure time where people can really sit and visit. And yeah, I think nice. sometimes, as you well know, too, that's where things really happen kind of thing. There is a lot that happens there. I think that that's a very good point, Larry. It's a, it's a very nice balance of things in terms of um, you know, giving people time to, to, to meet if they have a particular conversation they want to have, but at the same time, being able to get to most of the things that they want to take in. It's, it's never possible to get to everything no, 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 in, no, no, in, no. in any meeting, of course. That's just the way it is. And one of the things that thrills me about our organization is if you noticed the number of young families with, oh, the, fantastic. as you mentioned, the little humans. <laughs> I love that. I love that term, by the way. I'm going to steal that from you. Well, you go right ahead and steal that, because that's, <laughs> what that's what they are. They're little humans. But I'll give you credit for sharding. <laughs> that's okay. That's, <laughs> no, no, that, that's all fine, too. But I've always called them little humans, because it <laughs> just reminds me that we're all animals. Yeah, and, uh, true. You know, little dogs, little elk. I, I, little I, get, I get tickled quite often. They says, how can I learn more about deer? And I said, study people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, there's a, lots of similarities there oh, between God. wildlife and, 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 and we humans as it is. Tell me about what you're involved in right now with the Wild Harvest Initiative. This is such a fabulous program that you've initiated and yeah. continued to, to to work with and, and to spread the word. And to me, that's, and I'm going to back up just a little bit. I, I, I sat in on our conservation uh, committee and mm -hmm. somebody said uh, something, asked something, you know, you know, what, what have you done for wildlife? And I was able to answer the question, and I said, no, we're talking primarily about non-game species. And I said, we have done wonders for non-game species because anytime we improve the habitat, we improve wildlife habitat mm -hmm. as opposed to just game game species. And yep. so the, I said, the biggest problem is, is we've done a very poor job of making people aware of what we've done and how it's been done and all that kind of thing. And, and this is a little bit off the wild harvest initiative, but it, mm -hmm. it runs along the same, same lines. You know, it, it is with the research that you've done, you've learned so much and uh, how important all that we do when it it comes to wildlife and involving hunting to a great extent, how yeah. important it is to the human as a population. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that people 
in general have forgotten across the globe is that the uh, the distance between most people now and the food they acquire is so long, there's so many steps that they really forget um, you know how it gets to them. It really, they really even forget in many cases that uh, in the case of meats, for example, or fish, that a, a living sentient creature was actually at the end of that, pro that process. Right. And uh, I've been on a mission for a long time to try to make people understand that it, in my philosophical view of the world at least, uh, it is not natural for human beings to step outside of that role as a harvester. It's actually quite unnatural. Um, and our entire uh, evolution and our entire history as a species for the last 200,000 years, even after the development of agriculture 11,000 years ago, you know, we maintained in many cultures and in many parts of the world and still do uh, this process of our natural ecology, which is, of course, to harvest other species to right. sustain ourselves. And the best example, both of how people forget about this and also the best example of the scale of importance of this kind of wild harvesting, of course, is commercial fisheries. I mean, without commercial fisheries, uh, you know, about a third of the world would starve. Yes. Uh, and yet they're all sentient creatures. They, we pursue them. They try to avoid us. We capture some of them. We kill them. We butcher them. And then we consume them in one way or another. That's why I've always said that all world fisheries are hunts. And I think the hunting community has been very reluctant to pick up on that idea. But uh, I wish they would, because, of course, it's true. And what it does, if we consider it in that light, we know that most people accept that there have to be global fisheries, right? right. They, right. they just accept that. Uh, and I think that they ought to get it uh, far more uh, accepting and far more aware of just how important land-based harvesting is. I mean, we have billions of people, and I mean billions with a B, demonstrably, billions of people on the planet who still rely directly from the gathering and foraging and hunting and fishing uh, directly from the environments in which they live. And that doesn't just include hunted species, it includes fished species, it includes reptiles that may be gathered by hand, it includes all the wild foods of medicinal plants, the wild berries, the wild fruits, the, you know, the tubers, and so on and so forth. I mean, just because we live in a certain insulated world, uh, you know, where we have so much, we tend to forget that ultimately the planet is feeding us. And I would like for people to be reawakened to the fact that um, we are an animal. And, you know, I've <clears throat> I fundamentally have believed this all my life. And it has upset uh, some colleagues who have more religious perspectives and so on of things. And I understand that. I respect it. I, I was raised in a devout Roman Catholic family. I mean, it's, it's not that I have any disrespect for religion. It's just that I learned as a boy that they were the same as I was and I was the same as them. And I think if we could just accept that fact, we could get more people realizing that what we have to do is to be better custodians of the lands and the waters and those natural ecosystems that are out there, whether it's done by private hands or whether it's done by public hands or some mixture of the two, Larry, it doesn't really matter, but to safeguard those spaces primarily as food production systems and for clean water, clean air, all those kinds of ecological services that are required. And you know, it just seems so obvious to me when we see the disastrous effects of 
you know, these great fires that are burning and what it does to air quality and things of this nature. When we see degraded ecosystems that can no longer provide healthy food for people around the world, which happens in many, many parts of the world, we have so much evidence to indicate, you know, the bad things that happen when we don't look after the earth and the good things that happen when we do, that it's sometimes very hard to understand how people don't grasp that very simple dichotomy. And, you know, the, the, the movements, I, you know, I have a lot of friends and colleagues and talk a lot to people in, for example, the anti-hunting movement. And I have a lot of <clears throat> friends and colleagues who are very much into the more protectionist side of conservation. And that's one of the things that I and Conservation Visions have. I, I walk a lot of channels. Yes. Very few people do. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I respect their viewpoints. I, I really do. And I know that at some, in some cases we must be protectionist, you know, right. critically right. endangered animals or spaces or things of this nature. But what we have to understand is that if, if we really are seeking a natural place for man, which a lot of those groups who are opposed to use of wildlife espouse, mm -hmm. then the only natural path is the natural path that we, that we evolve from. And I think that we are in a, in a space where more and more people need to sort of come to the realization that we don't have three options. You know, there used to be in the debates, there still is really this idea, well, we can, you know, use the world sustainably, we can use the world unsustainably, which nobody wants, um, or we can sort of not use the world. There was almost this idea, well, as long as you took humans out of it, you know, everything would be okay. But, but every human is a consumer, Larry. Yes. Right? We all yes. breathe, we all eat, we yes. all travel, we all walk, we all... We all, you know, contribute to the gases of the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So I really think that um, what we need to be doing uh, in the hunting community is vastly expanding our messaging along the lines I've just indicated and not just talking about, you know, hunting or deer species or whatever it might be. Love what you're saying. <laughs> 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 because I, I knew your philosophy on some of that. Now I pulled from that. That was one of the things that I've tried to do here with some of our different committees and for the last several years with, with TWA is that, again, it comes down, it's it's wildlife habitat. Yes. It's it's not a speed, just deer habitat. It's not these things. It's not that. But in the wildlife habitat also includes humans. Yeah. I, see, I, 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 this is what I mean about expanding the message. I... I of course, we all have to talk about wildlife habitat oh, because yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. But I, I, I tend to want to talk about simply landscapes and habitat yes. so that there isn't this subliminal message that it's that's for wildlife and this over here is for us. I'd like to see us completely reinvent uh, the way we approach all of this in wildlife conservation and wildlife management in general. And I mean all our state agencies, provincial agencies and NGOs and everyone else. Right. I think we ought to go back much more to the earliest kinds of human impressions about all of this, where the land was essentially viewed as the sacred entity. And I mean water, include water. Exactly. Right? Yes, sir. And that we, you know, we, we looked upon it as the only source of life because... There was nothing else we could replace it with. Um, and I think we should be looking at land fundamentally 
as a food provisioning system for all life. And I think we should be changing our management regimes across the board to implement policies and legislation that look at it in that way. And that opens up a lot of interesting things. It's like access to wild foods and wild meats. Um, you know, we only have a small number of people really in society who are going to go out and hunt an elk or hunt a deer um, or fish for steelhead or, or Atlantic salmon or right, brook right. trout or whatever it might be or redfish off the coast or, you know, I mean, so um, we're only going to have a small number of people who will actually do that. No matter how much we try to encourage it, it's probably going to be a minority of people who do it actively. But there's a much larger group of people, I believe, who would like to have access to that food. Now, the, the troublesome question becomes, of course, how do we, under our North American system, make that food available to those people who are not going to do it themselves, but who would like to be the beneficiaries of that very healthy food of all kinds um, without disrupting our you know, our institutions and our laws and our policies around wildlife. And I think this is a question of, of, the, of the future. I think this is something we need to think about because in the Wild Harvest Initiative, we're looking at this question of how do hunters share their, yes. their harvest, right? Yes. And we've conducted surveys now in, here in Texas, uh, Wyoming, uh, Arizona, Nevada, and, and Alaska. And we'll soon be uh, running them in several other states. And what's really clear, first of all, is that somewhere in the neighborhood of about, it varies a little bit, of course, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 85 to 95% of hunters share. They share, of course, in their own homes, but they actually share more of their meat. This has yeah. been a really interesting thing. They actually share meat with more people outside their homes than they do inside their homes. And so we have already this system of giving to people. Some of them might be hunters who just didn't get a permit that year, but a right. lot of them are probably not hunters at all. Right, right? exactly. That yeah. And those people who are accepting that wild meat and learning about the benefits of that wild meat, they're our allies. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can get people to be interested in these wild products, the more we can get them concerned about the, the conservation and, and, and proper management of landscapes, because they'll see a direct benefit to themselves. Now, the North American model does not allow us to sell game meat, right? That's one of the right. principles that has yes. been there. And it was brought in for very good reason at the time it was brought in. But we now have to start thinking in, in quite different terms, because I think this idea of one health which is going to become the new paradigm for wildlife conservation and environmental management for the world. I'm very heavily involved in this now. I believe it's the new paradigm. I believe it's the paradigm we're going to live with. It's very simple. It fits right in with our hunting ethics, you know, having landscapes that support human health, wildlife health, and landscape health are all connected. If we manage it properly, we can draw resources off those landscapes that will be healthy for people, psychologically, physically, emotionally, all of these kinds of things. And so from where I sit, Larry, I think we're at a turning point for a major upheaval in how we think about all these things. 
and I don't think the hunting community has anything to be afraid of. And, you know, nobody likes change, right? There's always a little bit of reaction to that. But I don't think the hunting community has anything to be afraid of here. I think the hunting community is practicing a way of life that actually fits perfectly in with this idea of, of one health. In having dealt with landowners and hunting, sometimes it almost takes a change in generation. Yes, it does. For to in in an involve evolvement and an involvement kind of thing yeah. in, in these changes, yeah. and I, I, I can see that where you hit it with that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How how do we encourage more people at this point? How, what's the best way to do that? In in your opinion, I, I think, and you do a tremendous job, so <laughs> you're the one to ask as far I mean, as I'm concerned. I, I think the, I think it really does begin, and this is why I often talk about our our animal inclinations. You know why we why we love fire, why we have fireplaces in our homes in the south, why we why we you know people gather around a barbecue, but never ga- gather around your 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 electric stove or your your oil fired stove in your, right. your home. You know all these kinds of things. I really think the first elemental philosophical position that we have to bring people to is to understand that we are animals. And, you know, that's a complicated problem, uh, Larry, because there's a lot of sensitivities around that for different people, right? Uh, And, um, you know, we've we've had a long uh, history of theology and philosophy uh, and religion in its practical sense, which has sort of taught us a kind of a different way of looking at the world, that, you know, man has dominion, that we're kind of separate from the rest of these things. And I think what the terrible statistic of 8.2 billion of us crawling around this planet is bringing us a realization is that, uh, well, that may be okay when you only have two or three billion of us, but when you get eight, nine, and 10, you got to start thinking about it kind of in a different way. Because we can denude this planet. We're able to do it. There's no question about that. But then what do we have left? And I think we're getting to a point where we really need to confront uh, these discussions. And I think instead of the hunting community, which is often very conservative, it's often very reluctant to weigh into controversial debates because it feels that it's only going to bring criticism onto itself, you know. How can we speak about things like this when we hunt animals and kill them? You know, we're just going to get criticized. But I take a completely different view of that, and I always have. Uh, I think that we should be forerunners, for example, in discussions about uh, uh, animal cruelty. I think we should be forerunners in the discussion of... uh, of, uh, of animal health and welfare. Uh, I, I, I think we have a strong argument to make that the animals that we can hunt and consume, it's how they live, first of all. They live naturally. They live, they live beautiful lives. I mean, it's, it's not carefree. There's predators that eat prey. There's, you know, there's storms. There's things that happen. But they live the lives they were evolved to live. At some point, a hunter hopefully with a very accurate shooting, you know, can, yes, does end that animal's life. And yes, that animal is capable of feeling exactly the same kind of pain you or I can. That's one of the consequences of being an animal. 
Um, but if we hunt them properly, in most cases, the suffering is quite minimal, Larry. And in some cases, it's it's over instantly, a neck yes. shot or a head shot or a spine shot or something, you know, sometimes, and even a heart or lung shot, it, 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 you know, and the animal goes into a certain state of trauma. Anyway, it's, it's a quite humane. When you compare that with the lives of many domestic animals, and we have to have domestic livestock raised, and some domestic livestock we can raise very well, like cattle or sheep, because they come out, at least we can pasture them out in the open. But we can't do that with billions of chickens, and we can't do that with billions of hawks. You know, so unfortunately, a lot of those animals have to live lives that if, if you had a dog or a cat or a or a horse or a goose or any kind of animal that lived with you, you wouldn't want that to be their life. And you wouldn't want it to be the life for an elk or a whitetail either. Mm -hmm. So I think we're in a very strong position actually to speak up, to try to get animals treated the best that's possible in domesticated circumstances. I think we should condemn animal cruelty every time we see it. That, those actions just drive me insane. Um, and I think we should also be talking about this idea that hunting really is, in many cases, very much about an animal welfare kind of custodianship. But it all starts with us accepting the fact that we are the same as they are. No difference. And people will sometimes say to me, how can you say that, Shane? You know, how can you say we're the same? Like we, you know, we put a Voyager on Mars and, and we... Um, you know, we can build, uh, you know, all these amazing gadgets like what you're using to film me now. And they say, tell me, you know, what other animals going to do that? Even a great ape like a, you know, gorilla or a chimpanzee or an orangutan or something. I said, that's absolutely true. I agree with you that we, we have some amazing, amazing talents. But ask, tell me this, tell me. We have birds that migrate from Patagonia virtually to the Canadian Arctic. They fly up there, they nest in the Canadian Arctic, and they do what uh, big birds do, they have little birds. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> exactly. and then they fly back down all that way that one time, those little birds and the accompaniment with their parents. The next year, within about eight months or so, they turn around and fly back unerringly all the way from Patagonia, all the way back to the Canadian Arctic and right back to a specific place where they are going to breed very likely, very close to where they were born. Now, you tell me the human baby that can be dragged through the air, a company or in an aircraft or whatever it might be and go back and do that kind of thing. We can talk about it, unbelievable, incredible talents of animals all the time, Larry. We could, we could be at it for weeks. <clears throat> Absolutely. And never no. run out of stories no, to tell no. that we can't do. No, no. So I just see we have special capabilities. Exactly, yes. They have absolutely special capabilities. And I, so I don't see any of this business because we've developed a use of technology, you know, that began with the hand axes and the, and the stone, the cleavers and so on. And that all of a sudden that, that absolutely makes us different. It's a it's a it's a characteristic of the human animal that we do that. It's an amazing thing. Yes, that's absolutely true. But boy, oh boy, there's a hell of a lot of things that animals can do that we can't do. And I think we just ought to realize that they are just beautiful expressions. And even though I'm not a classically religious man, 
I do very much like the term creation because yes. I believe that kind of to me, no matter whether you're religious or not religious, creation is what happened. Yes. It came out of something right. and all this diversity is a, is a gift to us. My gracious. <laughs> 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 Shane, I, I, what I'd like to do is let, let's come back next week, if you don't mind, and let's let's continue this discussion right here. So, yep. ladies and gentlemen, join us right back here next week on DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon and with Shane Mahoney, and we'll continue the discussion that we just completed at this point, or that we started at this point. Thank you very much for joining us. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange and Roundtop, Texas. Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 White Till Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.